hundred years ago, most businesses counted their value in solid objects, like ships, buildings, pipelines and heavy machinery. But in the 21st century, the value of a company is much more likely to reside in the immaterial world. Inga Beale, Chief Executive of Lloyds of London, is quoted as saying, today the most valuable assets are more likely to be stored in the cloud than in the warehouse. Welcome to another episode of Think Business Futures. I'm David Brown. And I'm Nicole Sutton. And we're from the UTS Business School. On each episode of Think Business Futures, we take cutting-edge research, we couple it with real-world examples, and we try to find out what's actually going on in the business world. Unless you're in the accounting or insurance world, most likely you've never heard of something called intangible assets. Intangible assets, you say? Assets. 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 What the heck's that? To help explain what intangible assets are and how they're turning the accounting world completely upside down, we're joined by distinguished professor Stephen Taylor. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks, David. Thanks, Nicole. Firstly, before we get to intangible assets, what do we mean by assets in the accounting sense? Well, the best place to look for understanding what an asset actually is, is to go to a thing that we accountants know as the conceptual framework. Let me tell you the definition of an asset from the conceptual framework. It is a present economic resource controlled by the entity as a result of past events. Uh, I'm not sure that's helping. You're going to have to explain that. Right. So let me tell you a little bit more. So an economic resource is defined as the right or the potential to have future economic benefits. So to, in other words, get some benefit from something that you have a right to control. That's essentially what we mean by an asset. And there's lots of ways you can have a right. A right could be, for example, that you have purchased a piece of machinery. So obviously you have the right to use that machine and you bought it with a view to creating a future benefit. But we could just as easily argue that if you create a piece of intellectual property and you've registered it, for example, through a trademark, that just as equally might be viewed as as having something that you have control of and which you expect to produce for you a future economic benefit. But as it turns out, we don't account for these things the same way. So could you just explain to us what's a piece of intellectual property? Well, an example of a piece of intellectual property would be, for instance, a trademark. So you might have actually created some sort of visual representation of your entity. Like the swoosh on Nike? And as a result, you then register that so that nobody else can copy it. Would another example of intangible assets be something like goodwill? I mean, we've heard people talk about goodwill before, right? Goodwill's a little bit different. Goodwill is something that a company recognises and records as an asset, normally as a result of acquiring another company. And goodwill is essentially the difference between what you have paid for the assets that you can identify, and that includes, ironically, many intangible assets, and what you actually paid in the acquisition. So, for example, if you paid $100 to acquire a firm and it had $80 worth of identifiable assets, then essentially what you have is $20 of goodwill. What that's really saying is, I paid more than you can specifically identify for individual assets because I'm going to use this or I'm going to manage this company in a way that will create additional value. 
beyond just the value of the existing assets. If we were to just step back and kind of put all these things together, so overall we have assets, which are these resources which we have a right by which we can get some future economic gain. And within a broad class of assets, we have tangible assets, which are going to be the things which are tangible. So, you know, I'm just going to annoy the producer by banging on the table. Table is a tangible asset. And then we have our intangible assets, which are the ones which are not tangible. And within that, we have ones that are identifiable, like a trademark, and ones that are not so easily identifiable, like this thing called goodwill, which is kind of this miscellaneous bucket of value that exists once we purchase a company. Correct. But many, uh, let me add that many sceptics often argue that goodwill is essentially the amount that you've paid too much. (laughs) Well, that's when you were talking about it. My question was, why would someone pay over and above the value of the assets if they were buying you know, something, a building? And that's the reason, uh, the fact that there are future cash flows then? Associated. Well, there are many reasons why people pay too much in company takeovers. In many cases, there's simply a, a determination on the part of the board or management to ensure that they see off any competing bid And so as a result, they end up paying too much of what is in effect their shareholders' money, not necessarily their own. And in those sorts of cases, we often see goodwill recognised, but then subsequently adjusted downwards when the auditor is not satisfied that this is a legitimate asset. I just want to go back to one other thing that I'm just not quite clear on on this point, which is what is the key difference between our tangible assets and our intangible assets? A tangible asset is something that has a physical property. So as we mentioned before, a building, a piece of plant and equipment, a motor vehicle, something that you can physically see and control. And I think most listeners can probably understand how they represent things that you have control of. And the reason you have them is because they're going to produce some sort of benefit for you. On the other hand, an intangible asset is something that doesn't have that physical property. Now, there are things that perhaps are easier to conceptualize, like a registered trademark or some other form of legal intellectual property. But there are many other sorts of intangibles that drive the value of firms. For example, let's compare two firms where one has a really great approach to its employees. It is paying them for various benefits, uh, maybe, maybe gym membership and things like that that it doesn't have to do. It's got very happy employees as a result. A happy employee is 12% more productive than an employee who's not. Even minor acts such as showing employees a comedy movie or handing out chocolate can boost their morale and productivity. Why is management doing that? Are they doing it just out of their love of their heart, like charity? Benevolence. Benevolence? No. They're doing it because happy employees, they find, are employees who are more productive. In other words, there's there's an economic benefit. But the accounting rules would say that that extra kind of employee cost has got to be treated as an expense in the period in which you're actually paying. So this is an example of something that isn't intangible in the sense that it represents something that adds to the value of the firm. You've got happy, motivated employees, but you can't recognise that as an asset. You have to treat it as an expense in the current period. 
Something that perhaps a little more easily imaginable, though, research and development expenditure. Think of a pharmaceutical company. How does a pharmaceutical company create value for its shareholders? The value creation is through inventing and commercialising new drugs. So how do you do that? You spend a lot of money trying to develop a new drug. And typically the accounting rules say that you treat that expenditure as an expense as you go along. So all those research staff that you're paying for, you're treating that as an expense each time you pay the wages, even though what you're really trying to do is build an asset for the future. So this is a really interesting point because typically when we see the value of an organization's assets, uh, we see this alongside with the, the value of their debts and the value of the owner's capital. This is all reported on the balance sheet. Uh, and we will get into the difficulties of measuring uh, intangible assets. But before we do, let's just take a step back. And can you explain for our listeners how do accountants go about valuing and measuring and reporting on the value of typical assets like the buildings, like the equipment? In a number of different ways. Typically, what we tend to think of is that what we see on the balance sheet are assets recorded at what we call their historic cost. That is what we paid for them. In many cases, though, the assets may in fact be revalued so that there's something like their possible market value. Now, in the case of things like property, plant and equipment, buildings and so on, that, that's not normally the case uh, unless they're things that you're holding for investment purposes. So in the traditional sense of an asset, normally what we see is we record it at its historic cost and we then depreciate or amortise it over its expected economic life. In other words, we gradually write the asset off so that the write-off matches the flow of the benefits. And that's what most people understand in accounting as matching expenses and revenue to calculate income. You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Think Business Futures. So just so we've got this clear... Because you said depreciation and amortisation. So depreciation is where you expense or write off the value of the asset over a period of time as you use it. That's correct. Any listener who's ever studied any accounting at all will probably remember the first example they saw. At the end of the year, we owe Mr or Ms Smith $50 in wages. And they learn the idea that we want to get good matching of expenses and revenues. So at the end of the year, we record an expense for the wages that we owe and, in, and a liability because we still have to physically pay the wages. So depreciating or amortizing assets is the same idea. What you're trying to do is to match the cost that you're incurring with the time at which the benefit or the revenue actually occurs. Could you just tell us then the difference between depreciation and amortisation? Because you've used both those terms. It's really just a label. Sometimes depreciation is the term we use for something like buildings. Amortisation is uh, typically a word that gets used in regard to how we gradually write off uh, other sorts of assets, including where they're recognised some intangibles. Okay. Okay. So on this, what makes measuring and recognising the value of intangibles so tricky? Okay, so there's two steps there. First of all, do we recognise them? To recognise means do we actually record something as an asset 
or do we in fact just record as an expense whatever the cost of this thing is? So recognising, well, the problem is there have been rules in accounting for at least the last 40 to 50 years that restrict the ability of firms to recognise either research and development expenditure as an asset or other forms of expenditure that creates intangibles. And I used the example before of uh, spending more than you have to on your employees so that you create an environment where they are, in fact, more productive. So these sorts of examples are situations where you don't recognise an asset to begin with. If you do recognise an asset, though, the question is, how are you going to measure it? So to use my example of the employee of the happy employees, what part of that payment is really an asset creation versus how much is it in terms of the benefit you get in the current period anyway? So there's a measurement issue there. One of the reasons why accounting standard setters have restricted recognising intangibles is the level of uncertainty about whether or not a future economic benefit will really arise. And I guess in the context of these things don't have a physical presence, they perhaps don't have kind of clear boundaries, uh, and they could be in one sense just kind of created by the organisation themselves. So how do we even know that these things exist and will have future value? You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're talking about the intangibles. So let's talk about the regulation, because the way accountants treat most intangible assets today is currently governed by the international accounting standard. I think it's number 38. Uh, And it seems, as you said before, that this regulation has a long history with various exposure drafts, iterations, amendments. Would you be able to give us a little bit of background on the history of the regulation of intangible assets? The first real substantive regulation probably goes back to the Financial Accounting Standards Board uh, limiting what firms could actually do in terms of research and development. And then it's followed from that through both the FASB in the US and the International Accounting Standards Board, and between the two, they're the two main producers of, of accounting regulations and standards. Over time, what's happened is that although business has arguably changed substantially in that if you go back to sort of the 50s and 60s, a lot of how business operated was you know making things, the, the, the prototypical widget manufacturer. But increasingly, what businesses are about is the creation of intangibles in various ways. And that's what defines the success of many businesses. But accounting rules haven't really changed. And there are probably a number of reasons for that. So the uncertainty issue is a big factor as to why standard setters tend not to like recognising intangibles. It also probably explains why auditors aren't particularly keen on taking up the argument, as it were, because auditors, of course, never get into trouble where a firm understates its financial position. Auditors always get into trouble when firms overstate their financial position. So is this what you call conservatism? Does that go back to those uh, that early conversation that we're having? 
Accounting is unquestionably conservative in two ways. It's conservative about what we recognise as an asset first, and then it's conservative about how, in terms of how we measure the asset if we are able to recognise it. So accounting is conservative, and there are probably some very good reasons why that's the case. But what it does mean is that as the source of value in organisations becomes more uncertain than it used to be, accounting is going to struggle to keep up. This monumental accounting debate isn't a simple two-sided standoff. There are other players who have a stake in valuing a business's intangible assets. We've been around for over 40 years, so we were one of the first uh, branding agencies in the world, and now we are in we have about 23 offices around the world. Um, and when we talk about brands, uh, it's important that a lot of people assume that brands is a pretty logo, so a little bit of marketing, a little bit of advertising. Paola Nurembuena is the Chief Strategy Officer at Interbrand, a global consultancy firm that specialises in brand strategy, analytics, naming. Yes, um, well, I would say, uh, if we ask my mother, the most famous thing that I've named is Microsoft Bing. And most importantly for us, they specialise in brand valuation. Before we ask how Interbrand comes up with a dollar figure, we should first figure out what we actually mean by a brand. Well... You know, I've been asked that question for a very long time, and I'm not sure that we've ever really come up with uh, a pat answer. It is the expression of a business in the marketplace. So how I understand what you do, uh, how I keep coming back to you and what you do, and how I tell others about it. And this is important, because if a brand is part of a business's assets, you would think its value would be evident. But valuable to whom? And critically, how much? It's not an entirely new concept. If I go back to very, very many years ago when I was studying marketing, it was referred to as goodwill. So the idea of it has been around for a very long time. Yes, there's the pieces, but then there's this intangible piece that is how customers feel about me and how they come back. So it was just putting, it was attempting to put a financial value to that piece that really can, is very difficult to measure. So our basic methodology, which is available for anybody to see, is made up of three really key components. The first, of course, is financial. It's the assets. It's the things that you can sell, the bits that you can pull apart and put a price on. The second part that we look at is role of brand. And role of brand is literally the role of the brand in a purchase decision. Mm. And that varies from industry to industry. Think about the role of the brand when it comes to luxury handbags or cars. In those industries, consumers seek out a specific brand for its associated characteristics, such as the quality of its product, its level of innovation, its cool factor. But the third part is the part that we see the greatest amount of opportunity and insights in, which is what we call brand strength. And so over the last 30 years, what we have done is to take a look at all of the elements inside the business that we think build up to a strong brand. And we look at it internally and we do it externally. According to Interbrand's methodology, brand strength measures the ability for a brand to create loyalty, leading to long-term demand and profit. There are 10 factors that go into their measure of brand strength, including clarity, responsiveness and governance. These 10 factors are what Paolo calls the levers, which can land a business at the top of Interbrand's annual ranking of the best global brands. So that methodology is the one that we find most interesting because it it allows us to glean insights that Mm. can be turned into action. Mm -hmm. It allows for a much clearer roadmap and we can actually use it to say, this is really high investment, but it would be really important. This might be low investment, so you get to do something really quickly, have quick impact, and you can actually 
decide which of those you'll focus on to actually move your business to where mm. it needs to be. One example of that could be um, the ability for the brand to have longevity in the marketplace. So it could be about expansion. Expansion. So we take a look at an organization's ability to have permission to expand into different markets or into different products or into different services that um, clients may need. So it is assessing what that future leap could be. So it, it's fine to say this business is great now, but if it doesn't have a long-term plan, if it doesn't have any newsworthiness, new new innovations, it may actually have a limited run versus brands that may have broader permissions, um, have greater visibility into the future, and so therefore we can determine mm. that that value will either be maintained or increase over time. There have been some criticisms of the valuation in Interbrand's best brands list, most notably from marketing lecturer Mark Ritson, but we'll come back to that. Paula says that Interbrand's valuation has to account for fluctuations from things like innovation. I would say if we compare it year on year with the best global brands, um, the very the biggest variations that you will see will be increases in businesses that are tearing up the charts because they're charting new territory or creating new innovation. They also have to account for scandals. Yes, and the truth is that not all brands are doing that all the time. When you yeah. hear about scandals, they are occasional. They aren't yeah. all the time. If they were all the time, those brands wouldn't be on our list. Yeah. They, they would certainly have moved off um, in, <laughs> yeah. in reference for brands that don't have yeah. uh, constant scandals. I think the how the scandal is managed is different from how deep and significant an impact it has in the marketplace. Mm. Um, the most recent one, which was really interesting, was uh, in New York, where when Uber actually would have surge charges, and they, we had an issue at an airport where, with immigration bans, we suddenly had a lot of clogged traffic, and Uber put out a message which the intention was, we won't do surges because we want to help. The message that came out was, these guys are messing with a very serious issue and look, they're profiting from it. So the communication wasn't very, very good. And it spawned an entire movement of hashtag of like break up with Uber. It occurred to me while speaking with Paula that in terms of what Interbrand does, brand valuation is not that dissimilar to what investment banks do in terms of valuation. And it turns out that they use very similar skill sets. The, the team is made up of finance experts. So we do look for people who understand financial modelling. It's an absolutely critical part of what we do because that is the, the tangible place. But it's our strategy group that focuses on that and our strategists are usually MBAs. They have um, the skills in both business consulting as, as in brand consulting. So the valuation team take a deep dive into publicly available data. As in, you can Google most of this stuff. Many people may not know this, but you can easily access a publicly listed company's balance sheet. Try searching for Apple's 10K report. You'll find a listing of all Apple's assets, debts, and total shareholder value. And you can even find out internal data now through platforms like Glassdoor, where people are surprisingly frank about what is going on inside an organization. And Pallas says that there are real insights around an organization that arise from the Global Brands Report. So what I would say about any report that comes out, and yes, it's fun to compare numbers, but the really critical thing to take a look at is the insights. Why are the brands that are growing, growing? There are really wonderful macro insights that we can start to pull out to say, hey guys, this is what we're starting to see shape. These, all of these brands share this commonality around growth. This is something to pay attention to. These macro insights from the report are really interesting, but often when we hear about Interbrand's report, it always comes down to those big numbers. $215 billion. $120 billion. 
These numbers also impact stock markets, where companies point to Interbrands analysis to prove where they see themselves in the market. And that's okay to do. They should be using that information to make decisions or uh, work with other people um, because it's been done to help, but it isn't the only thing. I think it's easy to see only that as the value, which means that then we're only paying attention to the hundred who happen to make it onto this list. So if we only look at the stickers on these 100 brands, we do think that's a little bit more limiting. How an organisation uses that information when they are valued is actually really important to them. And this is where we're seeing a widening gap between market value and market capitalization, meaning stock price. This is where the figures produced by the conservative accountants vary widely from Interbrand's estimates. At this stage, the accounting voice in my head is concerned with the increased reliance on brand valuations. Now, Paula says there is a very specific scenario and point in time when this is problematic. I would say it would only be a really significant problem if every single one of these brands was on the chopping block for that number tomorrow. Right? So not all of these valuations will lead to an acquisition or somebody coming in and saying, yes, I have $65 billion to spend. They are more indicative of why that organisation is doing well, why we would see a greater intangible value to it, and what does that mean for us in the marketplace? How can we continue to do that? So. I would say with, with anything, particularly because you are by nature measuring an intangible, this is just an indication. It's an informed point of view. It's an educated point of view. It isn't an absolute that you could literally put the sticker on an organisation and say, great, it's for sale and this is what we want. You know, the old uh, chief executive of Coca-Cola, Roberto Guaidetta, used to famously say, you know, if you gave me a choice between all the factories and all the plants and all the trucks at Coca-Cola or the name Coke, I would take the name Coke. Mark Ritson is an adjunct professor at the University of Melbourne Business School. And it was kind of a, like a nice thing to say, but it's also a financially astute thing to say because around about 40% of Coke's total market capitalization is owning the, the Coke brand name. It is the most valuable asset in the company. So what's the basis of your concern around brand valuation? Well, I think first you, should, you have to draw a line between two different kinds of valuations. So there are three main valuation firms in the world, and they typically are doing most of the brand valuation work. And when they do that work, there's two different ways they can do it. They can either produce an external league table of their estimates of brand value, and that's the top 100 or top 500 league table. Or the alternative is they can work directly with a client to do some research and work with them directly to put a, a, a value on the balance sheet. My main concerns have been with that former rather than latter approach. And that's the most famous approach. So when you see your list of the top 100 most valuable brands, there are two main problems with those values that are stated there. The first problem is if you look across those three firms, the valuations that are being placed against a brand vary enormously. And by enormously, I mean by tens of billions with a B, billions of dollars. Now, as we all know, there has to be some form of variation for all kinds of reasons, but not to the tune of $100 billion. Yeah, that's a significant gap. What, what do you recommend these brand valuations do to address the variances? I've asked for many years that we compare the stated value in these league tables to actual prices paid when a brand has been acquired, because then we'd have some form of you know, quote-unquote objective value in which to compare the estimated value. And so they've been my two um, repeated complaints 
there's no sense of uniformity across these valuation companies. And when we have a real example of acquisition, it, it shows up that these valuations are, are in effect. You know, you, I mean, to give you an example, across those three firms, the, the companies doing the valuations are more likely to be 300 to 400 percent over or under the value than they are to be within zero to 20 percent. Uh, to be fair to these firms, and I know people in all three of them, and I have a lot of respect for them, they do a more accurate job when they work on a specific valuation for a custom client. But some of these issues continue to concern me. And in your analysis, did you see a bias towards overestimating the value of these organisations? Very good question. And yes, the answer is, yeah, a significant bias uh, in overestimating value. Uh, look, uh, the median valuation... It's somewhere around, I'd say, 200 to 300% overstatement of value. What do you say to the people who are insisting that accountants bring these assets onto the records of their organisations? I think, in theory, it's absolutely what they must do. And if you look at you know, what we notionally think and what we are financially aware of, if we look at the actual valuation of companies these days, it's clear that the intangible asset proportion is is growing in its, in its relative value. It's a spectacular growth. You know, intangible assets are increasingly the source of a company's value. And I think that's correct, by the way. And Coke aren't that unusual anymore. Most companies now, from the tech brands right down to B2B brands, you know, they would, in many cases, if not most cases, the most valuable asset in the company is the brand that that organization owns. So in theory, I totally agree. In practice, I think doing this with any level of certainty is, is, is the challenge. And, you know, I, I don't think we're there yet. So, Stephen, you were talking about investors and maybe managers being interested in value-relevant information. Is that what you would call it? Yeah, in general, I think there are a lot of people who believe that when they look at a firm's balance sheet, what they're seeing is some sort of picture that represents what the firm is currently worth. But we know that if we look at the prices at which firm shares are traded, and we look at what the balance sheet tells us, what we sometimes call book value, we see that the gap between market value on the one hand and book value on the other appears to be getting wider and wider over time, which is entirely consistent with the idea that book value, that is the balance sheet, doesn't do a very good job of actually telling us about what the firm's value really is because it it doesn't recognise many of the things that in fact are reflected in what people are prepared to pay for the firm's shares. So this is a real issue. So in one corner, you've got the conservative forces, the accountants and the auditors. In the other corner, you've got the value relevance team, so investors and managers, and they are looking for two quite different sets of information, it would seem, based on what you're saying then. That's right. There's a tension. And as with many things, it's hard to come up with a single solution that satisfies all kinds of different questions. And accounting struggles in that respect. It is, by definition, historically conservative. And in many ways, that stems from the way accounting information was first used. When when double-entry accounting was developed through the Middle Ages and then into the 1800s, typically what 
an investor wanted to know was, how much money did you get for selling all the stuff I put on the ship that you sailed away from the harbour with? So very much around what we call the stewardship role of accounting. What has management done with the money? Or as I said, back in the, uh, in the 1800s, what has the ship's captain done with the money? In fact, how much money did he bring back? But now what we typically see is this tension between, on the one hand, the stewardship idea in accounting, and on the other hand, what's often termed value relevance. That is the ability to use the financial statements as input into some sort of valuation model. I guess one of the questions our listeners might be thinking at this point is, okay, we have incomplete information from the accountants because they're conservative, because the regulators uh, and the auditors don't necessarily want to create for firms to be able to create these intangible assets. So there's, there's an information gap. And in that gap, we have other providers coming along or other sorts of information like clinical trial data, like data around, you know, hits on websites, like data around the state of our exploration. What's the problem? So first of all, is it a problem for people using accounting information? Well, maybe it is because although there are other sources of information, possibly what happens is that we nevertheless place a great deal of attention on accounting results. So whose side are you on, Dave? The Conservatives or the Value Relevance Crew? I'm completely torn. It's like the Empire Strikes Back. I don't know. Distinguished Professor Stephen Taylor, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us about the intangibles. Uh, Who would have thought this was so interesting? Well, we did. Well, that's true. So that brings us to the close of another episode of Think Business Futures. You can find more episodes of the show on your favourite podcast app or on the website 2SER.com slash thinkbusinessfutures. This podcast is made by the UTS Business School with the support of 2SER 107.3. Our executive producer is Jason Lecquier. Ben Robinson provides additional production support. Until next time.